Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, can progressives save Iraq? Former Clinton White House Chief of Staff John Podesta, President and CEO of the Center for American Progress, and military expert and Center for American Progress Senior Fellow Larry Korb, visit Zocalo to discuss the pros and cons of the Democrats' Iraq strategy and ask what progressives can do to make the best of a bad situation. As the U.S. enters its fifth year of war in Iraq, the nation stands at a critical juncture in its foreign policy. With increased U.S. forces entering Iraq, a debate is raging in Washington over the Bush administration's new way forward. Podesta and Korb outline an exit strategy they call strategic redeployment and discuss how Iraq will continue to shape domestic politics. This event was recorded before a live audience at Los Angeles City Hall as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. Here is tonight's moderator, Los Angeles City Council President Eric Garcetti. Thank you very much. Welcome to everybody to our august chambers here. In uh, For those of folks who are listening on the radio, you can't quite see what everybody in the audience and on television can see, but these beautiful chambers of our Board of Public Works room. And as I was uh, remarking to our two panelists, a place that has been filmed over and over in many, many films and television shows, you will see this room, uh, whether it's A Few Good Men or other shows, this is a place that certainly has taken up issues in the literary world. And today we are going to be taking up some of the most important issues in the political uh, and social worlds here in the United States. And I want to welcome all of the folks who have come from throughout Los Angeles to join us here as well um, to address the question of can progressives save Iraq? And people may uh, question whether anybody right now can save Iraq, but we decided to start with those uh, who uh, self-define or who are interested in observing progressives and who are curious to see at this very critical point, not only in our nation's history, but in a way that impacts Los Angeles here locally quite profoundly, what uh, pathway we may see to resolve uh, the ongoing conflict in Iraq. I want to thank Zocalo for its work here. Since 2003, almost as long as we've been at war, Zocalo has been providing a forum here in Los Angeles to bring together policymakers, artists, thinkers, members of the public to discuss some of the most pressing issues of the day, whether the topic is arts, whether it's religion, whether it's politics, whether it's international affairs or local affairs. Zocalo has done an incredible job of providing Los Angeles with a town square. And as we look today at where we go as a city and what role we have in the world, uh, Zocalo is firmly placed in perhaps what is the most global city now in the world, uh, firmly in the middle of our city as well. And I want to thank them personally because before I got here to City Hall, I used to teach uh, international relations at University of Southern California and Occidental College. And I, when people ask me about my new job as a, as a council member, I say, well, in the past I had a lot of time to think about things and no power to do anything. Now I have a lot of power to do things and no time to think. So Zocalo has also provided a space where people who think and do have power meet. And hopefully that uh, interchange of ideas results in policy and changes to the world around us, not just talk. With that, I want to introduce our topic here actually just footsteps away from these chambers and council chambers, we had many people uh, who came to City Hall 
who felt that they were unrepresented at the national level uh, by policymakers, didn't have an opportunity at a state level to be heard, but at the local level where under our state law anybody can come and talk to us just about anything at our council meetings, asked us to exercise an articulation of a perspective against unilateral or immediate action in Iraq in 2003. It was one of the most filled chambers I've ever seen as council member as we joined many cities around the country. In fact, statistically, a majority of Americans, their legislative bodies at the local level, passed resolutions against uh, unilateral action in Iraq. And since then, in March 2003, we've only seen a situation deteriorate and also affect us at a very local level, whether it's cuts in a war budget to housing and community development monies, whether it's been cuts to job training. We have certainly felt that this is a very intensely local issue as well as clearly an international one. And last November... The American people, in many ways, issued a mandate on the war and that called for a new direction, though that direction was not yet articulated as clearly as many of us would like to see. It was nevertheless a, a call for a change in direction, and that's what we're going to look at today. But despite this clear message, we've seen at the national level, at least at the presidential level, a continuation and acceleration of the war effort that is there. So we're here today to discuss what the other side of the political spectrum can do to help us find our way out of Iraq. The current strategy, I think most Americans feel, is not working, both in terms of the cost in human lives and the treasure that are being spent in Iraq, but also in terms of our strategic position um, as America in the world. I'd like to introduce two incredible individuals who have joined us here today to be the main parts of this discussion. First is John Podesta, who's no stranger to the world of politics, and we're very uh, blessed to have him here in Los Angeles today former chief of staff to President Bill Clinton. He juggled numerous balls on a daily basis from uh, federal budget and tax policy to monitoring security concerns with the NSC. And the breadth and depth of his experience as well as his intellect are second to none. He met with diplomats and heads of states from across the world. He's now president and CEO of the Center for American Progress, which is the, the, the root of progressive and as such, it is a progressive think tank that works to bring a progressive vision to all aspects of American politics and life, from economic and media issues to national security and foreign policy. And when you began that role, it must have seemed like uh, you were in the wilderness, and from uh, four years or six years later, it is certainly squarely where much of America is moving as well. Secondly, we are joined by Larry Korb, who is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a longtime expert and analyst of military affairs having served as Assistant Secretary of Defense and holding numerous positions at think tanks throughout the country. A prodigious writer and commentator, written over 20 books, but he has held positions at, among other places, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Brookings Institution, and he was also Dean of the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. His, as I mentioned, more than 20 books and over 100 articles on national security issues. Um, and if he looks familiar to you, it's probably because you've seen him on a host of news shows and resident expert for national security and international affairs. And also, as I just mentioned to him, Mr. Korb uh, served as well, not just in those manifestations, but as a member of our United States military as an aviator in our Navy and retired with the rank of captain to colonel in our uh, Army and Marines in the uh, Naval Reserve. So we welcome you and thank you both for your service to this country. Let me start, and why don't we start with John, by framing what this fuzzy word progressive means. And more particularly, I think a lot of people know what progressive politics feels like at a local or domestic level, but it's relatively new in the international sphere. How would you define what a progressive doctrine for international relations, foreign policy, looks like in the United States? 
Thank you, Eric. And, and I want to thank Zocalo and, and uh, Gregory Rodriguez for uh, hosting us here this morning. I think that the challenge is to really integrate that domestic sense of trying to provide opportunity for people, bringing people along, etc., to a, a view about how the United States operates in the world and, and a positive role that the United States can play. And that we have a long history of that in the country. I want to jump off and contrast what uh, something you said right at the beginning, which is this uh, the doctrine we've been marching down uh, for the last four or five years, this, this notion of preventive war, of use of military power first, and contrast that with, I think, how a progressive would see the world. Uh, the president put that in doctrine before the war in, in a strategy document that, that came out of the Pentagon in 2002. He pursued it in terms of the overuse, I think, of, of uh, military power, and particularly this obsession with, with Saddam Hussein and going into Iraq. And then I think he made a profound strategic judgment in exercising that, that view. And where has that left us today? Uh, with a uh, military that's weaker than when we began, with our alliances frayed because we did it in a way that didn't have uh, international justification, with a treasury that's depleted and uh, the United States spending $8 billion a month in Iraq, with our adversaries strengthened, with terrorists being recruited around the world, and I think profoundly with the United States' reputation tarnished and our ability to exercise moral leadership around the world being weakened. So what is our argument about what we do about that? We've called for something called integrated power, trying to use all of the sources of of U.S. power, military to be sure, but also our judgment about compliance with the rule of law, our ability to use our economic power, our ability to use our leadership in, in uh, restoration of alliances around the world, our ability uh, to use that moral power that's been the hallmark of the way the United States has conducted itself in the, throughout the great history of our country, uh, to try to bring the world together rather than, than to split it apart. And I think that that vision about the world that can be more integrated, a safer place, a place that builds up the alliances that have served us so well. And, and, and by the way, that was, I think, a bipartisan vision for much of the post-World War II uh, history of the United States. I think it's more recently that this has cracked off into an ideological division, is a place that, that we've tried to work and, and, and ideas that we've tried to throw out. Let, let me go to integrated power for a second, which... As I understand, it's a combination of traditional hard power and military doctrine, but also soft power, economic and cultural uh, ability to influence. Governor Dean, when he campaigned for president, you know, uh, often said, and I'm sure he was not the only one, but that the fall of the Berlin Wall was for two reasons. There was the military kind of hard power aspect of it, but there was also a desire because people wanted to be like Americans. And today in the world, very few people want to be like Americans. So we certainly have economic, formal uh, economic and social and cultural levers that we can use. But what about the informal ones, the popular ability for us to redefine what it means to be American to the world? How important is that for solving the situation in Iraq? Well, at some level, I think it's critical, particularly when you, when you think about the problems, uh, again, around the globe and, and our ability to project the uh, qualities of America, the, the sense of justice that can happen here again, the sense of the fact that America is on the side of people around around the world. And that comes through a lot, a variety of, of different messages, not just through our, our diplomats. And I, of course, had the pleasure of, of traveling with President Clinton around the world, I think, both while he was in office, but now subsequent to his being in office. And I think that sense that America was on the side of people around the world 
is a very powerful element, and I think that comes through cultural elements, through film, through music, through the, the, a variety of ways in which we inter- interact with people. And when we really, I think, build the case really around fear, around sort of pulling into kind of a fortress America, I, I think you lose, uh, you lose a lot. And for any of you who in the audience or people who are listening out there, I think if you travel today, you can look at the polls in which America's, the sense of, of America's standing is depleted, but there's also a sense that people want America back on the side, I think, of a, of a strengthened international system, and that's one that's built up that's aimed at, at cross-national problems. Some of them are, no doubt, are military in nature, but some of them are ones in which, if you think of transnational problems like global warming or global poverty or poverty in Africa or HIV-AIDS or the mass atrocities that are going on in, in various parts of the world, they want America to be on the side of uh, moving the world to a better place. And I think that our public projects that as well as our politicians. You're listening to former Clinton White House Chief of Staff John Podesta and military expert Larry Korb, both from the Center for American Progress with moderator Los Angeles City Council President Eric Garcetti. This is Zocalo. For more timely and engaging conversations, click on and tune in Zocalo Radio in the coming weeks as we bring you playwright Neil Labute and ACLU lawyer Peter Irons. Hang out with your radio, grab the podcast, or listen to audio anytime at our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. Now we continue our discussion, Can Progressives Save Iraq? Having somewhat defined the terms of the discussion and, and progressive policy, I think it's important for us. Progressives often claim that they start on the ground and they start at the level where we try to go ground up as opposed to top down in policy. So I'd like to turn to Larry, who's recently returned from Iraq, to give us a sense of what is happening on the ground there. We, of course, very famously have seen John McCain go through a marketplace with 100 people around him and helicopters flying overhead saying that it's safer today in Baghdad, but also claiming that he would have, in fairness, done it without the, the guards and the, and the helicopters. What is your sense, having returned there and having been there over the years, where we are today versus a couple years ago, and what are you hearing from Iraqis on the ground? Basically, the situation is getting worse rather than, than better, because uh, when I went there the first time in November 2003, you did have the concern about the insurgency. Now you have four conflicts going on. You not only have the insurgency, which is going on in Al-Anbar province, which is north and west of Baghdad, you also have Shia on Shia violence in the south, in uh, the Basra area. You have the Kurds and the Arabs squabbling over the future of big cities like Kirkuk and the role of Kurdistan in Iraq. And then you also have, of course, the violence uh, in Baghdad, which is mainly Sunnis versus, uh, versus Shia. And what is going on, and follow on what John said, the Iraqis basically are blaming us for a lot of these problems. You came in here, you got rid of Saddam Hussein, you're all-powerful, why haven't you fixed things? And if you haven't fixed them, then, of course, you really must not want to uh, fix them. And if you look at the opinion polls in Iraq, close to 80% of the people think that we're contributing to the violence. And to a certain extent, we are, because if we prevent the Shias from going after the Sunnis or vice versa, that starts a new circle of, of violence. The other thing that you sense is the Iraqi government itself is really not 
taking it seriously. They're going about their business like uh, they have all the time in the world to fix these problems because they really feel that we'll stay there until they fix them. And they don't want to make these hard choices because they're hard. I can use an analogy from the United States. I mean, our political leaders know we have to do something about Social Security, but nobody wants to do what's necessary because the decisions are hard. And they more or less are pretending, you know, staying that we'll be there more or less as a crutch for as long as they, they need it. The surge basically is moving the violence around. When we flood one area, it moves to another area. And the bottom line is that until they complete the national reconciliation process, which involves balancing the powers of the central government and the provinces, getting the role of religion and and government uh, set, protecting minority rights, and most importantly, distributing oil revenues, until they do that, we could put a soldier or a Marine on every street corner in every city, and the violence will not, uh, will not stop. So at the uh, center, under John's leadership, back in the fall of 2005, after we had done integrated power, people said, okay, you're complaining about Iraq, what's your plan? And we said then, the United States needs to set a specific date for withdrawal. We said 18 months. And basically, that would give the Iraqis time to do what they need to do. It would fulfill our moral obligation to them. And it would allow us to begin to take our troops out of there so that they could protect our interests in other places. What you have right now is uh, the United States, when this surge is complete, we will have all four brigades of the 82nd Airborne deployed. Never in our history, even during the Korean War, did we deploy all four brigades. We always kept one brigade in reserve in case it had to go someplace else. We'll have all four uh, brigades there. You're destroying the Army in terms of its future capabilities. Not only are you wearing down the, the equipment, you're wearing down the people. And young men and women of the type that you would want to join the Army are simply not doing it. Last year, 10% of the recruits coming into the Army had moral waivers. What that means is criminal convictions, 900 felonies. Uh, Why did you do that? Because the American people don't support the war, and the Army, in order to get its recruits, has had to raise the age to 42, almost triple the number of non-high school graduates and people scoring below average on the Armed Forces Qualification Test. Even with that, they're only flunking out or washing out, as they would say, half the number that you usually do in recruit training. So you've got a long-term problem that you're, you're building up. Now, people will say, well, you know, if you get out, things could get worse. And yes, they could. And I think this is important to keep in mind. There are no good solutions because of why we went in and how we did it. But we think this maximizes our chances of protecting American uh, interests as well as fulfilling our moral obligation to the Iraqis and fulfilling our moral obligation to the young men and young women who join the service. What is happening now to support this surge is we're taking young men and women right out of basic training, putting them in units, and they haven't had the chance to bond with the rest of the unit and go for the training, and sending them right over to Iraq. And that's not fair to them or to their, to, to their, to their families. So basically, 
I really believe that we've, what we talked about, it's strategic redeployment, set a date for withdrawal, keep forces in the region. We do have uh, interest uh, in, the, in the region. Be able to send more uh, troops to Afghanistan, which is not going well, and bring uh, the other troops home so that they can, uh, as the Army says, you know, relax and resuscitate themselves. You're listening to former Clinton White House Chief of Staff John Podesta and military expert Larry Korb, both from the Center for American Progress, with moderator Los Angeles City Council President Eric Garcetti. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Kick off the summer season with Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. On June 1st, radio personality Adam Carolla visits Zocalo for an irreverent and possibly shocking conversation with the L.A. Times' Megan Dom at the Skirball Cultural Center. Then on June 5th, can the L.A. Times be saved? Times publisher David Hiller, editor Jim O'Shea, innovation editor Russ Danton, and LATimes.com executive editor Meredith Artley discuss its fate with Kit Rackless, editor-in-chief of Los Angeles Magazine. And on June 22nd, an evening with Larry Wilmore, The Daily Show senior black correspondent, moderated by Oscar Garza, editor-in-chief of Ciudad Magazine. Zocalo events are free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. In a moment, we continue our discussion, Can Progressives Save Iraq? Stay tuned to Zocalo. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We now return to Can Progressive Save Iraq, a discussion with John Podesta and Larry Korb, recorded before a live audience at Los Angeles City Hall. Larry and, and or John, if you want to jump in either one of this, one of the things you highlighted, which I think progressives and all human beings, presumably most human beings, care about, all human life, and our obligations to the Iraqis are to make sure that whatever steps we take are ones that hopefully do not leave behind as many Iraqi dead as could be possible. What creates a greater sense of urgency within the government in Iraq? You mentioned that there isn't that sense of urgency. Certainly as somebody who's an elected official, I can think of all sorts of things that bring urgency to other elected officials. This weekend uh, in the New York Times, I think uh, Nicholas Krisloff wrote about, we needed more ambivalence, and that when we were so sure and so certain that we were going to be there, it created no environment in which the Iraqis would step forward. Similarly, if we were too sure about withdrawal, uh, it could also create a, a similar reaction. But if we sent mixed signals, that was his thesis, that uh, whether it was in Korea and some of the other examples where we have withdrawn troops, that actually gives the sense of urgency. Is that a way forward, or what other prescriptions for urgency do either of you have? Well, there's no doubt about the fact that sending mixed signals is better than saying, we'll stand down when you stand up. So there's no doubt, and that's why I think it, I mean, it's rather ironic. Many Republicans are complaining and the administration about Congress trying to force the president to move in the direction we've talked about. And yet, when they go over there, they get that message to Mr. Maliki, hey, you better shape up because Congress back there with those quote-unquote, you know, off-the-wall liberals, they're liable to pull the plug. Certainly, 
that's better. But the fact of the matter is they also talk to the administration people. They see the president on television. So it's better than no signal, but it's not as good as sending the signal that you need because until you do that, they're not going to deal with, deal with the situation. Now, as going back to what John talked about, integrated power, we don't say just militarily get out. You don't need a military surge. You need a diplomatic surge where you get the countries in the border Iraq involved. And when we set a date to get out, they know that Iraq becomes their problem as well as ours. And none of them want to see Iraq as a failed state because if nothing else, they'll have refugees. When I was flying out of Baghdad, half the people getting on planes were leaving the country permanently. They had all of their life's belongings with them. And over two million have left. And the people who are leaving are the leaders, the elite that you need to, to, to help get the country back together, the professional, the professional people. Iran does not want to see it become a haven for al-Qaeda. That would be a threat to them. So they would then be willing to work with us, not because they just support our goals, but for their own reasons. And so if you do that, I think that has the best chance of minimizing the violence because if Iran doesn't help their side and the Saudis don't help their side, then in fact the wherewithal to cause some of this violence will, will decline. But again, I think it's important to emphasize there is no perfect solution. The best analogy I can give you is something the late Molly Ivan said. She, she said, looking at Iraq reminds uh, of the person who sees the bee's nest. And you say, don't hit that. Don't touch that. The person goes over and whacks it. Then all the bees get out and turns around and say, hey, you've got to help me put them back in. I mean, this is the situation that you're in. And, I, you know, under John's leadership and working with my colleague Brian Katulis, who's as an Arabist, I think we came up with the least bad option of all of the options on the, on the table. Eric, if I could just add a word to this, because I think it's really central, and I think it's, it troubles people across the country. There's a, a lot of um, wonderment, I think, about why the American public has wanted to both get out of Iraq but sort of seems somewhat ambivalent about the timing of it. And I think really it's at the heart of what your, what your question was, which is, of course, no one wants to leave a bloodbath behind. It's not enough to say they should have thought about that before they got into it. I think that we, we are where we are. And I think that the question that the country has to ask itself, that we on our side of the political spectrum have to ask ourselves is, does our staying in an open-ended uh, style that we have now, or actually surging uh, the number of U.S. forces there, does that improve the chances of calming the violence? And I think the answer to that is already in. We are the target of the violence. More than 60% of the Iraqi people think it's okay to attack Americans. More than 80% want the Americans out. And if you look at just what's happened since the surge began, violence is up, U.S. casualties are up. The premise that a strengthened U.S. ground force in Baghdad is going to change that dynamic is simply wrong. And I think that the argument that we're trying to make is that this has got to be, at the heart of it, a solution in which the Iraqi people, after a very long time, a lot of, of blood and treasure being spent, have to make these hard political compromises. That will not happen while the United States is there in the, in the kind of numbers that we're talking about. And appreciate the, the reference of, of the popular opinion in Iraq. I think the ABC poll that came out 
more specifically, had 97% of Sunnis opposing the U.S. being there, 84% of Shiites. And yet, only 35% called for an immediate withdrawal of U.S. forces. So Iraqis are also nuanced enough to realize that this has to be done if it's done in the right way. And two-thirds of the American people want us out in that something like that 18-month time frame that Larry talked about. But if you ask him, do you want, to, do you want us to leave right now, that number goes to under 50%. So, I mean, I think that people are trying to struggle uh, with this very, this is the core of the thing that, that in their hearts they're really trying to struggle with. I want to get more to the U.S. politics in one moment, but one last piece in Iraq. One of the things that you've both called for is a U.S.-led peace conference. And I wanted to explore that a little bit with some of our compromised credibility in the Middle East and certainly some of our ongoing issues both with Syria and much more attenuated in Iran. Can the U.S. play the role of being the convener of a peace conference? If so, how? And if not, with whom or who else should be doing that? Well, you know, for a very, very long time, the, the United States' posture was that we refused to talk to Iran or Syria, even about, uh, about Iraq. That's changed to some extent in the last recent months, I think, uh, bowing to reality, I suppose. And I think that the question is, can the U.S. – I think the U.S. has lost its capacity to do – to uh, use your verb – to convene that process, but as Larry noted, the, the Iranians and the Syrians have a big stake, as well as the Saudis and others, the Jordanians. There's a flood of refugees across the region. There's a lot of reason to believe that if the United States changes its posture, uh, not because they want to do us a favor. If anything, what's happened is, is we've completely strengthened the Iranians' hands over the last five years, but because they have their own interests and our interests of trying to create some stability in Iraq and then in the broader region, create at least a reason to, to have that strong dialogue and see if we can work together in some efforts that will put the pressure, uh, again, on the, on the Iraqi politicians and, and to uh, begin to, to, to form that sort of compromise and to begin. The Syrians obviously have an important role to play on sealing the border or not. And uh, it's not enough just to scold them. I think that they, they need to be engaged on that question. I think uh, Larry served in the Reagan administration. I think President Reagan understood you needed to talk to the Soviet Union. You couldn't just uh, sit on one side of the ocean and yell across the ocean at them. We need to get them involved. They don't share our interests across a very broad range of issues. But if we don't talk to them, I don't think we're going to make progress. You're listening to former Clinton White House Chief of Staff John Podesta and military expert Larry Korb, both from the Center for American Progress with moderator, Los Angeles City Council President Eric Garcetti. This is Zocalo. Next week on Zocalo Radio, we'll take a look at California's new early bird presidential primary with LA Times op-ed columnists Ron Brownstein, Rosa Brooks, and Jonah Goldberg joining Times editorial writer Robert Green and editorial pages editor Jim Newton, moderated by L.A. Times publisher David Hiller. More information is at our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We now return to Can Progressive Save Iraq? You noted that Larry served in the Reagan administration and works at the Center for American Progress, so progressives are everywhere. My question to both of you about American politics is, has the war made U.S. progressivism mainstream? Well, I think the political center clearly has shifted in the United States. I'll start off with Larry. I kid him that said that his 
political views haven't changed since the 1980s. Just the whole world has moved right. And so now he's standing with me. I think the reality, though, is that that the public is, is highly dissatisfied with the direction the president's taken the country across a whole range of issues. They're highly dissatisfied with the competence of the administration, again, not only in Iraq, but Katrina and on domestic policy. They're, they're very dissatisfied about the way the economy is working for middle-class people in this country, the inability to surge of poverty in the country, et cetera. So they're, they're dissatisfied about a lot of things. But I think at the heart of it, I think, is the, is the sense that ideology rather than kind of sense of practical direction led the country into its probably the biggest strategic blunder in our history. What that's meant, I think, is that if you, if you look at the electorate that's roughly a third, a third, a third, a third uh, Republican, a third independent, a third Democrat, that, that changes a little bit uh, from time to time. The people in the center are much more highly aligned in their policy views and in their, and their ideas about which way to go to send the country on Iraq and, and this other host of issues I've raised on energy policy, on global warming. On, they're, they're much more highly aligned. So the president is in, engaged with a shrinking base. And I think one of the things he's doing right now is, in, se- in some sense, talking to that base. And if you listen to uh, political commentators in Washington, the sense of that he has not tried to really engage with the Democratic leadership is meeting with him today, but he's, you know, the preconditions of that meeting are that it's his way or the highway. So I don't think that's real dialogue even with, with our, our uh, congressional leaders. I think he's just trying to hold on to that base, and that's, that's shaping, I think, national politics in the, both on the presidential side, and it certainly shaped it uh, in the congressional election, which the American public voted uh, very strongly to, for a change of course. Larry, is it the role of Congress that this has come up a, a lot? You've, you've presented a plan. You've certainly heard this talked about by presidential candidates and by members of Congress. Is it Congress's role to be the implementer of this plan, or can it work without any presidential assistance? And if this president doesn't move, then is the only way to do this in two years? I think it's the role of Congress to make it clear to the president that the current plan is not working, that he doesn't have an open-ended commitment to do whatever he wants, and basically there are alternatives. Now, what the Congress is doing, I think, is what they need to do right now. And for example, when the Congress, when they passed the, uh, the supplemental bill this year and they put the sense of Congress, we ought to begin withdrawing by a certain date, that you shouldn't send young men and women into battle unless they're fully ready, unless you come and explain why. That moves us in the, uh, in the right, right direction. But there's no way that Congress basically can force the president to accept our plan, but I think they can keep pushing him in that direction. And this battle has just begun. We're dealing with the supplemental for 2007, which is the fiscal year that started last October. There's going to be a regular budget for 2008 or supplemental, and they can keep basically uh, making it clear to him that he can no longer just have an open-ended check to, uh, to, to do this. And I think they're exercising the role that the Founding Fathers wanted them to do, is to make it clear to the executive when they get out of line with, not just with the wishes of the American people, but the wrong policy. And people are always saying, well, you know, this is different. Congress shouldn't do this. You go back and you look, they've always done it. They did it in Vietnam. They did it when I was in government with Lebanon. They did it when John was there with, the, with Kosovo. Many of the same people who are complaining now were the ones who were, were, were doing it.
John, if we're still in Iraq in November of 2008, does a Democrat win as president no matter who that person is, in your opinion? I think the 2006 election uh, portends in that direction. I mean, elections are... A lot of people lost a lot of money being certain about elections, I suppose. But I think that the the Democratic candidates, I think, are giving a clear sense of that they're going to break in direction on Iraq from where the president is. And I think if we're still bogged down there and about the circumstances that we're in today, that would uh, argue very strongly the Democratic got elected. The interesting thing... It goes back, I think, a little bit to the uh, what I said about where the Repu- where the Republican base is. Is that the the leading Republican candidates have all embraced the president's strategy, notwithstanding that two thirds of the American people is against it. So I think they have a very tough road to hoe, if you will, in basically trying to get the nomination uh, and then convince the American public that they're going to do things differently. If the Republican candidates have all embraced the the White House's uh, strategy right now, I assume they haven't embraced the Center for American progresses, have any of the Democratic candidates embraced Well, I, I should say it depends on who you count. As I said, the leading candidates, I think that, for example, Chuck Hagel, if he decides to run, has been uh, someone who has largely, I think, come uh, put forward ideas that are quite consistent with what we're talking about. But I think that if you, if you think about McCain in particular, but Romney and Giuliani, sure. that they're, they're there. And I think that on the Democratic side, you know, there's some there's some variation about certainly what went on in the past, but I think that they're generally aligned on the idea of reducing the U.S. force presence there, uh, trying to, to restore the, particularly the ground force uh, of the U.S. military and try to restore America's power and position around the world. So the variation amongst those Democratic candidates ends up uh, being a little bit more, I think, about where they've been than where they're going. For Hillary Clinton, who is still number one and the front runner for the Democrats, how difficult uh, does the Iraq situation present her as a primary uh, challenge? Well, you know, I think that the the strongest elements of the anti-war part of of the Democratic Party have challenged her. They want her to particularly, I think, repudiate her vote in 2002. I think if you look at the underlying, if just as an analytic matter, if you look at the underlying vote, I don't think the public really is pushing towards that, but you're certainly an, there's a sense that the activists want that, and there was just a move on just to a town hall that was conducted in living rooms and on uh, and over the satellite radio, and their membership, the strongest anti-war voices, got a little bit more strength amongst the activists, and I think that's a that's a factor in this. But my guess is that that in the end of the day, where the vast bunch of the public is looking at is so what's your experience. Can you get us out of this? What's your plan for it? And I think on that, in that sense, her service on the Armed Services Committee, et cetera, will, will hold her in pretty good stead. But I think there's an there's a activist movement that will drift in a different direction. I, I want to ask you about other candidates, but we have one minute left, so I will conclude. I want to thank both of you, not only for being here in Los Angeles, but for pushing this issue forward. This plan wasn't something hatched in 2007. It was in 2005 when um, those of us who spoke out or who spoke of withdrawal or phased redeployment or spoke out against the war, we were few in numbers when we started, and now we, are, I think, represent an overwhelming majority of this country. Tonight, uh, as I head home to, in Echo Park, I will uh, see, as I have for the past four years, uh, giant signs on the corners of uh, Echo Park and Sunset with people saying, honk if you want the troops home. And let me tell you, it's a pretty noisy uh, intersection for the last four years. And also, uh, I think for those of us who, who do serve, and I also serve in the reserve component of the Navy and just had to see two other young 
men who uh, I serve right next to not show up this month because they've been deployed, we know that the stakes are indeed very high for all Americans and all Angelinos. So thank you to everybody in this room for being a part of the Zocalo series. I want to thank again both Larry and John for helping us push this forward, and we look forward to not only continuing this discussion, but continuing the activism until the real change that is needed is made. Thank you all very much. Thank you. You're listening to former Clinton White House Chief of Staff John Podesta and military expert Larry Korb, both from the Center for American Progress, with moderator Los Angeles City Council President Eric Garcetti. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series has a busy summer ahead starting on June 1st when radio personality Adam Carolla visits Zocalo for an irreverent and possibly shocking conversation with the L.A. Times' Megan Dong at the Skirball Cultural Center. Then on June 5th, can the L.A. Times be saved? Times publisher David Hiller, editor Jim O'Shea, innovation editor Russ Danton, and LATimes.com executive editor Meredith Artley discuss its fate with Kit Rackless, editor-in-chief of Los Angeles Magazine. And on June 22nd, an evening with Larry Wilmore, The Daily Show senior black correspondent, moderated by Oscar Garza, editor-in-chief of Ciudad Magazine. As always, Zocalo events are free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and download podcasts, go to our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. Up next, the audience asks questions of our guests, John Podesta and Larry Korb. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We've asked our panelists to answer the question, can progressives save Iraq? Now it's the Zocalo audience's turn to ask the questions of our panelists, John Podesta and Larry Korb. Chuck Levin, native, proud to be here at any event hosted by the wonderful humanitarian Eric Garcetti. I didn't plant him, I swear. <laughs> How about a question for each of you? Mr. Korb, is this true? More generals and admirals in active service and in retirement today are openly opposed to this war in proportion, say, to previous wars. That would be a question for you and Mr. Podesta. As long as $2 billion a week is being spent with half of it or more going to Halliburton and those other companies, why would Bush be willing to willingly end it? Yeah, I think you're beginning, it it is unprecedented to see retired officers speaking out the way that they are. And I think the reason for it is what this war is doing to the military that they spent so hard in building after Vietnam. And let me summarize something that General Maxwell Taylor, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Kennedy-Johnson years and also ambassador to Saigon said, and this is what they're saying. General Taylor said, we sent the army to Vietnam to save Vietnam. We took it out to save the army. And this is what their concern is, that 
these policies just keep getting us in deeper and deeper, costing more and more lives, blood, and treasure, and they're not getting us any place. And so that's why they're, they're speaking out. With respect to this, the second question, I'm not naive. I don't expect that the president is likely to do, I think your term was, willingly change his, his policy. I think he's he keeps doubling down, even when he had the chance as a result of the Baker-Hamilton Commission to change course, he, he chose to reject that. On the other hand, I think public opinion matters. I think activism matters. And I think the congressional pressure on him does matter and can force him uh, to begin to a more sensible policy in Iraq. Whether we can get him all the way towards having to get to the stage that, that Eric suggested that we'll be out of Iraq by uh, November of 2008, we don't know the answer to that question. But two years ago and one year ago, I don't think we would have thought we'd have been in the place we are today. And that's why continued pressure on him and on the administration and on the, on the political system is so critical. Yes, my name's Daniel Florek. And based on the reaction of people because of the slaughter that's going on in Darfur, what do you think will be our reaction if and when we pull out of Iraq and the same thing happens there? It's a very challenging and tough question, both from the perspective of the kinds of resources we have to put into places like Darfur, as well as the public uh, reaction to doing it. I'm actually somewhat more optimistic that uh, the public would support action there, that as long as it's done with respect to a mission that can work and done with international sanction, we certainly have a role to play in ending the genocide in Darfur. I think we need to do more there, and I think that's up to and including using military assets there, and I think the public would support that. But but I think that there, at this stage, after the bloodshed in Iraq, that's, that perhaps is an open question. We were, we obviously, I was engaged with at the White House during the bombing of uh, uh, in Kosovo, and, you know, at the beginning that wasn't popular, but the American public stuck with uh, the president on that. We res- reversed the ethnic cleansing that was going on in Kosovo. I think the same thing could happen with good leadership in, in Darfur. My name is Claire Heron, and I would certainly like to know how, I mean, isn't it rather audacious for us to believe we could be a peace broker with Iran at the peace talk table when we're on the Iranian coast with a great massive buildup with our threats to Iran and the UN and also with all of our war games that we've been going on? How can we legitimately or honestly say that we could be a peace broker? I think, and John mentioned it before, is the Iranians have interest in the region and some of them were shared. Now, let me start with Afghanistan. The Iranians didn't like the Taliban. They saw them as a threat to them. They didn't like all the opium coming into their, their country. And so they cooperated with us quite closely to overthrow the Taliban and to get rid of al-Qaeda. They don't like al-Qaeda either because al-Qaeda is a Sunni group and they're Shias. They shared intelligence with us. They uh, basically are in there building roads and highways now. They're stopping the opium from, from, uh, from leaving. They're the second biggest donor to the rebuilding of Afghanistan. Uh, in 2003, after we invaded uh, Iraq, they offered to work with us to deal with the future of Iraq. Their concern is Iraq does not become a threat to them. Remember that the war they had with Iraq back in the 1980s, they lost several million people 
Uh, so they don't want to see that happen again. And so therefore, we share that interest in dealing with them about the future of, uh, of the future of, of Iraq. And we have done this traditionally throughout our history. When President Nixon went to China, the Chinese were still helping the Vietnamese fight us. But we had a bigger enemy in the, uh, in the Soviet Union. The Iranians also know that uh, if, in fact, they continue to meddle in Iraq after we leave, the Saudis will arm the, uh, arm the, the Sunnis and, and cause all of these problems. And that's what the Iraq study group said, you know, that basically you had to do that. And whenever you think about negotiating with, quote, unquote, terrible people, I'm always reminded of something the late Itzhak Rabin said when they asked him one time, how can you negotiate with a person like Arafat? He said, you've got to negotiate with your enemies, your friends you can consult with. So you have to do that, and that's what nations do, because they don't have, you know, permanent friends or enemies, they have permanent interests. And there are things, we have a whole host of issues we didn't deal with the, with the Iranians, but this is certainly one that they're, they're concerned about. Their fear is that we're, as you pointed out, we're going to go into them next. And so therefore, if you announce that you're leaving the region, you're leaving Iraq, then the, 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 I think the calculus will change. Harvey Schick, I'm a supporter of Zocalo, and thanks so much for this excellent series. The question here is, why doesn't the progressive movement fully support for the brief period that the surge is going to go, fully support it. Joe Lieberman, a lifelong Democrat, has an excellent essay in the Wall Street Journal that's nuanced, showing how important it is to support Petraeus, a PhD in terrorism who accepted this post voluntarily and believes it's going to work. Richard Pearl's been on the PBS. He is not a neocon. He did not architect this Iraqi invasion. He's a lifelong Democrat who feels also as Joe Lieberman, two major Democrats. Let's get behind the surge because it is the most sensible answer that we have at the moment. Well, you know, I guess I I dispute the characterization, particularly of Mr. Pearl. But uh, uh, the you know, I think that what what progressives need to do is do what they think is right. If they don't think it's going to work, then they shouldn't then they they shouldn't support it because, in the context of the politics of today, you know, it may be uh, the easiest way to, to to go. There's no evidence that this is likely to work. I mean, I have uh, respect for General Petraeus, but I just think that that the people who are telling us this is going to work were the people who have told us over and over again for the last several years that the last strategy is going to work and the strategy before that and the strategy before that. And so if we believe that, that there's a better way to, to, to move the country, I think we've got to be full-throated in support of it. Can I say something about General Petraeus? Because I think this is very key. <clears throat> the administration is making the argument, well, you confirm General Petraeus, so therefore you have to support the surge. No. The policy of the government is carried out by military people. And the executive and the legislative branches decide on the policy. General Petraeus was confirmed because he, they felt he was a very qualified uh, officer. His PhD is not in, in insurgency. He has a PhD in history. He was in charge of writing the counterinsurgency manual that came out in December. But that's going to take a decade for the Army to learn that. That manual should have been out before you went in there. 
The next thing I would refer you to, since you mentioned General Petraeus, September 26, 2004, an op-ed in the Washington Post by General Petraeus, who at that time was in charge of training the Iraqis. Read that article, and he'll tell you we should be out by now because of all the Iraqi security forces that were ready to take over. When I saw that, I was really upset for two reasons. One, I knew it wasn't true. And number two, why was a uniformed officer writing an article right before an American election to talk about, you know, how things were going? I felt that that was completely wrong for him to do it. Let me hear the final thing. The best officer we have in the U.S. military that understands the part of the world where Iraq is that we're trying to do is John Abizay. He's an Arab American. He speaks the language fluently, okay? He basically said more troops are going to reinforce the image of the occupation, okay? He's out of there. So this idea that somehow or another because we confirmed Petraeus and got rid of Casey and Abizay because we didn't like their advice, which is the president's prerogative, doesn't mean he's doing the right thing. And as I say, go back and look at that article. And the other final thing, since you mentioned Petraeus, when the surge started, the initial thing was 60 to 90 days, we would know. Then we would know maybe by the summer. Now Petraeus and company are saying, you won't know for a year and a half. Okay? So, I mean, wait a second. So when you look at that, I think, and, and go back and, 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 and I'll, the final thing, and, you know, when I work with Richard Pearl. When Ronald Reagan talked to Gorbachev, he was opposed to it. When we signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement, he was opposed to it. Both things he was wrong, and he was also wrong listening to this con man, Chalabi, who got us into this mess by telling us we'd be greeted as liberators. My name is Israel Foyer. I guess I'm coming from the opposite direction of the previous gentleman. I'm a bit disappointed in you in that uh, you're a bit too tepid and timid for my taste in terms of the mess we're in. Someone mentioned the least bad option. What about the best option or best options? Look at the larger picture, the deeper impact of this whole matter. Well, I, I think that we use the term least bad option because there are no good options. And I think that the, the real question is if you decide to withdraw right now, today, uh, in a very short time frame, what does that do to the United States' interests and what does it do to the people of Iraq? Our view is that we got to get out of there. We got to reduce the military presence there. We've got to restore America's uh, standing in the world and rebuild our alliances, and that the best way to do that is is through a phased redeployment and a phased withdrawal. I think what we're fighting about probably is the timing of that. Hello, my name is Matt Miranda, and I think you may have foreshadowed my question with your comments about uh, uh, Petraeus before, but what I wanted to know is how would you answer the argument that's being made that it's not just a surge, but also the change in strategy, and that you know it's getting soldiers out of the green zone and into the neighborhoods and the hearts and mind campaign, and that we have to give that now time to work. Basically, uh, if you take a look at that, you don't have enough troops to do it. If you read Petraeus's counterinsurgency manual, you should have uh, maybe 500,000 troops. And you just don't have them. Now, if the president wants to do this and General Petraeus wants to do it, then you're going to have to go back to conscription if you want to do it, uh, do it right. Uh, the next thing is, yes, we're going to move into the, to the neighborhoods. Which neighborhoods and for how long? Okay, and that's the other issue. When I was in Baghdad last week, I didn't see any American troops in several neighborhoods because we don't have, uh, have enough. And so if you go in and you get one neighborhood under control and then you move those people 
to another area and you leave the Iraqis behind to do it, you're going to have the same problems you had, bef had before. I don't disagree with the strategy in the sense of, you know, from sort of an objective point of view, but this is not something you started with. Look, General Shinseki told the Congress, under questioning from Senator Levin, you would need several hundred thousand troops. The number in the RAND study was 500,000 in order to get the situation in Iraq under control. Paul Wolfowitz, who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense, said Shinseki didn't know what he was talking about. What did Wolfowitz know? I mean, Shinseki was the Army Chief of Staff. He lost his foot in Vietnam. He ran the peacekeeping in Bosnia. I mean, he knew what it took to get a situation under control, so they just dis dismissed it. Now, if you wanted to follow Shinseki's advice, you didn't have enough troops. If you had told the American people back in September or of 2002 or early 2003 you, what you would have to do to put 500,000 troops on the ground in terms of mobilization and stuff, they would have said, wait a second, you guys were telling this, we'd be greeted as liberators and, and all of that, that, that that type of thing. So yeah, I mean, intellectually, I can agree with it. But if you listen to people like General McCaffrey, okay, who say, too little, too late. Mr. Korb, Mr. Podesta, Mr. Garcetti, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. You've been listening to Can Progressive Save Iraq? a Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series event. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A Org. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening.